you have to build hope over time. And I find myself rolling my eyes at myself because I always say hope is an action verb, which means that you have to transform hope into actually activating people to volunteer, to run, to donate. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Stephanie Gerber-Wilson. Stephanie is a communications strategist for state legislative campaigns and co-founder of the Hoosier Victory Alliance. She's also host of her Freedom Over Fascism podcast. I asked Stephanie what brought her into politics, who she talks to on her podcast, and why she's adopted Indiana to try to move from red to blue. If you're interested in Indiana politics, you should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Stephanie Gerber-Wilson. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Stephanie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I would love to. First of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. So I'm Stephanie Gerber-Wilson, and I am the host of the podcast Freedom Over Fascism and the co-founder of the organization Hoosier Victory Alliance. And that might make it seem that I'm from Indiana, but I, in fact, live in Massachusetts, and I have adopted Indiana as the place where I do my political work. But my political work is fairly recent. I think I'm on career number six, possibly seven. And so it's been a long and winding road to get here. But everything that I have done has been connected by storytelling. So I'm a historian by training. That was my undergraduate major, and I have a PhD in it. But I started out after college doing public relations for high tech during the high tech boom in San Francisco. And that might tell you a little bit about my age. And then went into just regular public relations and public affairs. But I was helping people, organizations, businesses that did not share my values. And I decided after a lot of thought and trying to figure out what I wanted to be, I had a quarter life crisis and I decided to go to graduate school as many do. So I moved across the country. I, I grew up in Southern California. I lived in San Francisco after college. I moved all the way to Boston to go get a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies 
and then decided midway through to why not get a PhD. And my focus is on the Middle East. And even 20 some odd years ago, when I started, it was always relevant. And one of the things that I did while I was in grad school, I also worked for research centers and I participated in a partnership between Brandeis University and Al-Quds University in Jerusalem and the West Bank. And that was one of the most important things I've ever done. It was building a civil institution in Palestine. And I firmly believe building civil institutions is an incredibly important part of building societies that are free and thoughtful and can be successful. So I did that. And uh, after I finished my PhD, I worked in research centers at, at the university. But I also had chronic daily migraines. And so I had to stop because I couldn't work anymore. The pain was just so much. So I have still chronic daily migraines. So it's an invisible disability. People say, but you always look great when I see you. And the answer is, well, you only see me when I'm capable of doing that. After I left the academy, I spent a couple years dealing with my health. And then I returned to working. I help people create websites, logos, and storytelling. And here's where I started to get involved in politics. The first time I actually volunteered for a campaign was for Pete Buttigieg in the 2020 presidential primary. And after he pulled out, I started to work for a group called the Biden Digital Coalition. I was the national Facebook lead. And that was a parallel organization that went on every social media channel, created content, and essentially amplified the Biden campaign's message. And by being on every channel and by creating content, and each of the leads had teams under them, so it was a really big organization, completely volunteer. I like to think that we really helped move the needle. And after the election, you know, for a hot second, I thought, oh, we've saved democracy, but then quickly realized that that was not indeed the case. So after the election and January 6th, I created my own nonprofit in the same general mold, which I wanted to create content and amplify the progressive message. It was called More Perfect Democracy. And I talked to people all over the country, helping them with messaging and creating content for social media and helping them figure out how to communicate a positive message in their particular area. And I am so pleased to see that in the 2022 election, some of the people I worked with had taken some seats and had flipped them. When they first came to me, they didn't have a candidate. And they say, how do we kick this guy out of office? And I said, well, actually, you need a candidate to do that. You can't just kick somebody out with, without somebody to replace them. And so a lot of that early work on messaging and 
convincing them to find the right candidate really paid off. I'm not taking credit by any means, but to see that the people I'd worked with continued on and were able to be successful was really exciting. I worked with one of my team members who had been on the BDC with me to do a couple of projects in Indiana. And then she became the campaign manager and asked me to be the comms director for a state house race in Indiana. So I was the comms director for Heidi Beidinger, who ran for the state house, wasn't successful, but we ran a campaign that broke the mold in Indiana, which is over time become a way to conduct campaigns that are are more appropriate to maybe past decades. So that's the context. And then I, with the person that I worked with, her name is Mary Noon, we created Hoosier Victory Alliance, a 501c4 together. And that's where the current story starts. We know that in Indiana, there's a GOP supermajority, and it's heavily gerrymandered and very heavily voter suppressed. So you get what David Pepper called the a laboratory of autocracy. You have state legislators who are unaccountable. Most people don't even know who they are. There were 39 state legislative seats that were uncontested by Democrats. So we started thinking about how can we contribute to regaining progressive power in Indiana. So one of the first things we did was we created the podcast, Freedom Over Fascism, which started out with the name What the Gerrymander. We're working with the C4 right now to create a a program where we are the ones who are closest to candidates. We want to recruit candidates, help them learn how to run campaigns, especially if they don't have money. Mostly it's their best friends running their campaigns for state and local office in Indiana. That's the long and winding road that brought me to Massachusetts to work in Indiana. Well, whenever anybody says they had already seven careers and they involve a PhD in Near Eastern and Judaic studies turning into a campaign consultant and many other things. Sometimes I have a little bit of trouble trying to figure out where do I start with the questions. But I think it was a useful summary of how our current political situation has taken a lot of people into politics that might not have planned to get there. Since I've been interviewing people for six and a half years, I've seen so many people from so many walks of life become politicized, become part of trying to make change and trying to fend off all of the bad things that the right is trying to bring to our country right now. And I appreciate that you're in that fight. I want to ask you about some of these things that you've started because my emphasis is a lot on political entrepreneurship, and I think you've turned yourself into such a person. First of all, you seem to have a company, which you didn't mention, that's a communications enterprise, and that's your campaign consultancy. Is that what that is? SGW? SGW Communications. That is what started as web design and 
branding and logo design. And then the more I did in politics, the more it shifted from working with entrepreneurs on their companies to working with candidates and causes. So that's a through line. Is that a business that has employees? Is that your main source of revenue? What is that enterprise for you at this point? That has one employee, which is me. It's a small business. And in the shift from doing websites for small companies to actually mostly focusing on the podcast and Who's Your Victory Alliance, I'm not entirely sure if it's still a business, but it's not making much money right now because I'm doing so much on a volunteer basis until we can raise the money to help support me in this work. You have such a a portfolio of different activities. Where are your priorities among the different things you're doing and why? I think my heart priorities are with the podcast. I absolutely love interviewing people, talking about the really important pieces of the national conversation and bringing them to Indiana and other red states or the rigged states. Nationally, we often narrow our focus to swing states because they're so important in presidential campaigns and people who are outside of the MAGA-captured states sort of write them off. So being part of the conversations on both sides is really important to me. And finding a way to recruit and train and start to build back power in Indiana, although you could have really chosen any red state. Tell me about the impetus to start a podcast, to first name it, what the gerrymander, what did you do to prepare to have a podcast? How did you find guests? How did you figure out the technology and how you would market it? What's the story of this podcast? Initially, I was a co-host with Heidi Beidinger, whose campaign I worked on. And we found guests by asking people we knew. And so some of our first guests, actually, some of our first guests were because I had heard them on your show. Well, I would listen to your show and say, ah, we need to talk to that person because we need to learn this. Who were those people? Haley Bash was one. Every time I listened, I thought, oh, I I need that person or someone like that person. I noticed that you start off by asking for a quick biography, but you use a different way of saying it. How did you come to that? I prepared by listening to podcasts that I liked. I thought, okay, well, Preet Bharara opens his podcast this way and you open your podcast that way. And I had a group that I listened to consistently. Starting out, I knew nothing about the technology. Someone said, oh, you should use Riverside. I was like, okay, I'll do that. And then I realized I needed editing software and I needed a host and I needed more editing software. So that was a bit of a journey. And at the beginning, I was all alone with it. I was doing all of the tech, all of the prep. And frankly, I still do a lot of it by myself. Although my 
teenage son is now getting some of his community service hours by helping edit the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) He loves it too. So it's great. After a few episodes, it became clear that it wasn't really Heidi's thing. So I, I continued and we got guests by looking at the books we had read and just contacting people. First guest was David Pepper, and he actually helped us launch HVA. So he was in it from the beginning. The important book for us was Laboratories of Autocracy, finally bringing to light what it's like in states which have been so badly gerrymandered and voter suppressed, and how states that had once been reasonable, Indiana voted for Obama the first time, Ohio was a swing state for a long time, could go so quickly to be so extreme. So he was our first guest and he works with an organization called Every State Blue. Their concept is that you need to contest every seat in the legislature in these states and that that could be helped by crowdfunding. So the theory of the case is that if you understand that the goal of a candidacy in deep red areas is not to win, but it's to get more votes, then everything sort of falls into place. So it doesn't seem like a useless thing to run in in deep red areas because a lot of the people there haven't been asked for their vote in a very long time. They haven't had a choice of a Democrat on the ballot. And they think they're alone. They think they're the only Democrat in their town or county, and they're not. So if you can get more votes every time, that filters up to help the people at the top of the ticket who didn't go to those areas of the state. So we decided that that would be a project that we would like to be a part of. And so some of our first guests were Jonathan Zucker, who started this organization, Jess Piper, who's the director of Blue Missouri, which was the first one, Kim Allen, who was the director of Blue Texas. And frankly, I have gotten a lot of my guests on the social media site that shall not be named, even though last year I said, oh, this is going downhill. It's not going to mean anything. Frankly, I've gotten some of my best guests by just asking them on Twitter. Clearly, this is something that you took to. What is it that you like so much? And what is it that you're trying to convey by the choice of guests and the types of questions you ask them? Well, everything that I have done in all of the different careers have involved storytelling. And because I'm a historian, I'm deeply interested in the historical roots of where we are today. Um, One of my favorite podcasts while it was on was Joanne Friedman and uh, Heather Cox Richardson podcast, where they talked about issues of the day and went back in American history to find the roots. And so what I wanted to do was look at the national conversation and see how it applied to Indiana and other red states. So one of my first guests, David Bussey, who's now running for governor of Montana, had written a book. Ryan Bussey, right? I'm sorry, Ryan Bussey. Yes. Yeah, I had him on also. Yeah. (laughs) And he was a great guest. Yes. And frankly, 
the way he spoke about the war that he has seen coming out of the NRA on the American people flipped our lens a little bit. And so then I started talking about this slow war that I thought a lot of people were missing as the forest by looking at the trees, which is one of the ways that MAGA tries to hold our attention in different spots. So the attack on reproductive freedom and the attack on transgender kids and the attack on um, the safety of kids going to school and on public education by defunding it and having this conversation about vouchers were all the same conversation. It was ways that MAGA had of dividing people against each other so that we wouldn't notice they were taking power in a lot of different places. So we couldn't get our act together to realize it was the same war. And that brought me to Jeff Charlotte, who I, I had heard on a, a podcast earlier, who wrote a book called The Undertow, Scenes from the Slow Civil War. And so that's a little bit how I have framed it in my head, that we need to take all the different pieces and understand that it's the same conversation. Why did you change the name of the podcast and what does the new name mean to you? I changed the name because I wanted the name to reflect what we stood for and not have people wonder. So I wanted the name Freedom Over Fascism to tell the story itself. My last guest in my first season was not Schenker Osorio, who I think you've had on. Yes. And she is my guiding light for messaging. And frankly, her episode is the most listened to episode that we've had. And she uses that framing, freedom over fascism. Her biggest advice is to say what you're for. Say what you're for, say what you're for, say what you're for. And so we are for freedom over fascism. And taking the framing of freedom, we use that in Heidi Beidinger's campaign, I think is a more useful framing than we've got to protect democracy. We've got to protect our freedoms and democracy will flow from that. So... That's how we got there. I know that I've learned a lot from talking to the people I've talked to in aggregate, quite a bit sticks because it's things that were new to me. If you had to summarize your evolution in understanding the progressive ecosystem, what we have to fight against this as a team, how has that changed over the score of interviews you've done so far? Well, I did not know the breadth of our ecosystem. I think that we, as a large whole, don't do a very good job of making clear what that ecosystem is, how many groups are part of it, how we work together or don't. And for a long time, I've been thinking about how do we break the silos of the organizations and the campaigns within our ecosystem, because there's a lot of groups who say, don't come into my lane. And I think that's not the right approach. I think the right approach is we're all on the same team. We've got to share what we know. 
We've got to share what's working. I mean, Indiana, we're 10 years behind, say, Georgia and Wisconsin. But that doesn't mean we have to start from scratch. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this podcast is find the people that activists in Indiana and other MAGA-captured states and teach how they can find good approaches without reimagining the whole system. So you also have started this Hoosier Victory Alliance. Mm -hmm. How does the podcast inform that and how do they relate to each other? So Hoosier Victory Alliance is about connection and creating a community out of people who are running for state and local office. And we are creating a course for candidates and their staff or their unpaid staff, their super volunteers, so that we can make it easier for them to run successfully for office. And freedom over fascism is one way that we can connect to other people in Indiana and other people in MAGA captured states who have more experience, but also to widen the perspective and to support the activities of Hoosier Victory Alliance in any way we can. So Hoosier Victory Alliance is more of an active engagement with candidates and campaigns and other groups in Indiana. There's a donor table and an alignment table. I know you've talked a lot about this. That's relatively new. And this is the first time anyone's saying it in public, but we have become part of the alignment table. So freedom over fascism is one way that we can spread the word about what people in different parts of the ecosystem are doing, both in Indiana and in other MAGA-captured or red states. So in a lot of states that have moved in our direction over the last 20 years, there have been these successful alignment groups that are about communications or about money or about not duplicating efforts and things like that. What's the state of things in Indiana? How advanced is that effort in Indiana? So I believe it started a couple of years ago. And right now it's in the middle of a, a reboot. So there are maybe 10 organizations that are part of this alignment group. They're starting to create a new strategic plan for how to move it forward. That's a pretty small number of organizations. I'm sure that's not all that are working hard in the state, but does it seem like Indiana is a little behind then? If we're talking about places like Georgia. Colorado, Minnesota. Colorado, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Minnesota, Wisconsin, yes. Indiana is behind. And I think it took a long time for people to recognize in Indiana that those states that have come a long way have been working on it for a really long time. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in one cycle. A lot of times it's the demographic trends that have not worked for us or worked for us. Like Iowa was a democratic state, became a kind of purple state, now is kind of a red state. A lot of that seems to be the Trump coalition of white rural people. And 
their allies. What does it look like in Indiana? There's two really important elements. One is that once the GOP, and which is now very completely MAGA in Indiana, won the seats that they did. And it was part of Karl Rove's intention to take over state houses. Like the whole red map period. The whole red map period, right? Yeah. So you get them into office in time to draw the maps and then you can pass all sorts of voter suppression laws. When you feel like nothing you do will change the outcome, you stop even engaging. So I don't believe that there are very many undecided voters left. There might have been Republicans that are now disgusted with Trump. They have to decide, are they going to vote at all? And if they feel that nothing that they can do will change the outcome, generally they don't come out and vote. So I think that that more than anything is is the biggest challenge. However, I don't think that Indiana has done an even minimally good job mobilizing the African-American community that does exist, the Latinx community, the Native American. Most campaigns essentially, aside from in the Indianapolis area, ignore those groups because their district is 95% white. When you have very little budget, it's hard to go out to any but the usual suspects. And plus, the voting files in Indiana are terrible. So even if you have the best of intentions to reach out to all different kinds of communities, the data that you have to reach them is often faulty. In two days, I'm going to interview Andrea Miller, the head of Center for Common Ground. And she says, hungry people don't vote. And she's created all sorts of democracy centers. She's now working in Virginia. She's worked in Georgia and all across the South. I'm going to let her tell the story. But she has done a, a tremendous job in mobilizing BIPOC communities in the states where she's working. Now, those states have much bigger African-American populations to mobilize than Indiana does. But we could learn a lot from people who are really doing the work. There's a lot of people that we're not reaching. Yeah, I, I did talk to Andrea. How much did Trump win Indiana by in the last two? 57-41, basically. That is a walloping in presidential election standards, but that still is over 40% of the state that's voting Democrat. And that is a lot of people. It's not a minor party when you have 40%. And maybe you can come up with candidates that are a better fit for Indiana and make it closer. I do think you're right about you sort of have to build hope over time. I think that is the absolute key. You have to build hope over time. And I find myself rolling my eyes at myself because I always say hope is an action verb, which means that you have to transform hope into actually activating people to volunteer, to run, to 
donate. How do you fit Hoosier Victory Alliance into the ecosystem in Indiana? Did you like research what was already there? Did you feel that there was a particular gap? How did you think about adding another organization to the state? Well, there aren't as many as you might think, or not as many that are big and active enough to be well-known. And the gap is that none of them work directly with candidates. And candidates are often very poorly funded. They don't know how to run campaigns. They don't have any campaign staff. Is there like a a minority caucus in the House and in the Senate? Yes. It's a very old school kind of caucus, which is problematic for people who want to change the way campaigns are run. And it's old white and male. There's also these national organizations from the DLCC to independent organizations that target money into state legislative campaigns. Have you seen them active at all? No, they won't come into Indiana because they feel that it's more than 10 years out from flipping. So field team six doesn't work in there. Swing left doesn't work in there. I mean, indivisible, if you create your own chapter, DNC doesn't put any money into Indiana. The state party is doing what they can, but their budget is is pretty small. And there's no Indiana superstar. The last one was Pete Buttigieg, who left Indiana for good things. I mean... And before that, the buys, Evan Bayh, you know. Right, but that was a ways back. So you look in the array of people who are running for office or who are leading organizations, there is no single person that has risen to the status of being to, able to unify the party. I think Jennifer McCormick, who is running for governor, she's a former Republican, she's in uh, public education, has a chance to do it, but hasn't yet. So that's one of the gaps is that we need to work on the bench. There's super majorities in both the upper house and the lower house, which means not only can they control all legislation, but they can override a governor even if they're more extreme. Right. But the governor is pretty extreme and the attorney general is pretty extreme. What kind of legislation are you seeing come out in Indiana with that, what you're calling capture? By the right. So Indiana was the first state to institute an abortion ban after Dobbs. Indiana was one of the first states to completely open up the gun laws so that you don't need a permit to carry firearms. It was one of the first states to start prohibiting gender affirming care. It is defunding public education through voucher kinds of legislation, but also just defunding public education, then there are things that come along with it. Once you put in an abortion ban in in place in a state that already has one of the highest maternal mortality rates and only had OBGYN care in a third of the counties, you make it impossible to train OBGYNs because they cannot be taught how to provide the full 
spectrum of obstetric and gynecological care. Indiana U- University Med School moved its OBGYN training to Illinois. And, and even fewer doctors will stay. So there are a lot of downstream effects. When you have a defunding of public education, you have fewer kids who are going to college and coming out with degrees. Therefore, you have a less educated workforce. Therefore, companies are much much less eager to come into Indiana. A lot of times when a party goes too far in one direction, they start to accumulate opposition. Things like abortion, we've seen it create a strong backlash in other states and move things in the progressive direction. Are you seeing a backlash in Indiana or do you feel like given the conservative nature of the state right now that voters are getting what they want out of a captured Republican legislature and governorship? So some of the ways that other states have fought back, Kansas, for example, is through ballot measures. Indiana doesn't have ballot measures unless a majority of the state house puts it on the ballot. So that is a a way that is not open. I think that the majority of people are not in favor of the abortion ban, but it's also not an issue that motivated enough people to go vote in the last election. So there needs to be much better research. There needs to be much better ways of contacting voters and non-voters. The other thing is in Indiana, you don't register for a party. So the only way to pull data on who's a Democrat is who pulled a Democratic ballot in the last several primary elections. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And then a lot of it is wrong. I mean, I, not to say really bad things about NGP Van, because I know that you were involved in the founding, but the data isn't good enough to, to serve the candidates. Well, the data is not sold by the NGP Van. It comes from the DNC, right? Right. So, and, and from the state party. Yeah. Yeah. What's also happening is that people who run are not feeding the new information back into the system. What are they doing instead? Nothing. Yeah. I mean, it would automatically it. it would automatically go back into the system if they were using Van. Yeah, but it's many, many years behind. It, it's just not going that fast. So at least I'd say 25% of the, the numbers we had were wrong, the addresses we had were wrong. And then without anybody registering for a party, whatever's a lean D or a strong D isn't actually accurate. Who's the state party chair? Mike Schmoll. He was Pete Buttigieg's campaign manager. And how's he doing? Is that? Depends on who you ask. I think that he has goals and they probably are appropriate goals, but he he hasn't done a good job of communicating what those are and why it's important to not think that we're going to win every race. What do you think is the profile of someone who could carry Indiana statewide in the case of a weak candidate on the other side, let's say, and a very strong candidate on our side in the right kind of year? Well, I think they need to be young and charismatic. I think they need to have the right advisors because the party comes and takes control of a lot of campaigns and they sort of 
highly recommend various advisors from out of state who have ways of doing things that I don't think are serving the candidates. They haven't had someone like that. Do you think Pete Buttigieg could carry Indiana if he were on the Democratic ticket or if he were running for governor or something at some point? Not yet. But that's the kind of profile. That's the kind of, right. And he's a once in a generation talent. So maybe not once, but like he's, I think, incredibly skilled. He's a very good communicator. You refer to ways of doing things that are recommended by out-of-state consultants that don't work. What are you referring to? I am referring to people who recommend putting a lot of money into broadcast TV. That's still going on? That's still going on. Yep. So the party or the, the caucus will highly recommend that you use a DC consultant, but of course they don't send the person who's the highest and the best to Indiana. They highly recommend that you put dollars into broadcast and a less into cable and streaming and nothing into purely Google ads, YouTube, and nothing extra into a ground operation. Whereas I think every door in Indiana needs to be knocked on if we're really going to change the way things are. I can see why it would be hard to shake the migraines in this situation. By the way, I'm very sympathetic about that because I never really had a headache in my life, but I had brain surgery in March. And ever since, I have had basically a seven-month headache. I'm still able to do my work, but it does take the joy out of too many things when it's in a worse situation. So sorry you have that. Have you found anything to be more helpful than not in treating it? Well, I've tried just about everything. So I started getting migraines when I was nine. So this is, and I'm 51. So it's not a new thing. There are new drugs that are better. The thing that is most effective for me is the one that the insurance companies won't really pay for. And the doctors say you shouldn't take more than 12 pills a month. I've managed to have 10 years of using it by going around insurance. I'm sorry you have that challenge. It sucks. What should I have asked you about your path and your organizations and your view on politics that I failed to? The thing that I would like to convey to people is that you don't have to be living in a red state in order to make a difference there. I grew up in California. I've lived in Massachusetts for now almost half my life. And I adopted Indiana and so much can be done remotely now that people in states where it's pretty much under control for the moment can make a lot of difference in places where they really need dedicated people to come help. I have never gotten the sense that people think I'm a carpetbagger or that I don't belong. I've just been welcomed with open arms. So I would recommend that. Yeah, it is. Well, great to talk to you. I will try to pay attention to what you're up to in Indiana. Anything else you want to say? Well, thank you for having me on. When you, when you contacted me, I was a little bit fangirling 
and very excited to be on here. So well, I hope I haven't ruined that feeling after this interview, but <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I'm going to continue to listen because you have such great people on. It's really fantastic. Thank you. That was Stephanie. She's at HoosierVictoryAlliance.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit DemocracyGroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.